Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And this is a podcast that's going to have a lot of ups and downs, because we're going to talk about how elevators work. Yep, yep, we are. So, um, you know, elevators, most of us are pretty familiar with these things. Anyone uh, who lives in any place that has buildings that are four stories or higher probably is very familiar with them. Really, humanity has been pretty pretty familiar with these, or at least some kind of hoisting device for uh, recorded history. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, because it turns out that we need to get stuff to places where that stuff isn't. And sometimes that means lifting stuff up high places or up to high places. And having someone carry it there is not always the most convenient method. Right. So uh, so hoisting devices, you know, been around for ages. Uh, there are plenty of examples of various pulley systems. Uh, in fact, Archimedes, which uh, our longtime listeners will know that, that Tech Stuff has done a podcast about Archimedes. Uh, Archimedes was um, credited with coming up with the first winch and pulley system. And by that, I mean... The winch, as in something that you wind the cable around and, and turn to to pull it up, not not a like woman. a bar bar winch. Yeah, not different. Not, winch, not, winch, not, a, not, not a bunch of ladies ca- carrying tankards and holding onto a rope and saying heave. That would 
that would be amusing, but that's not how it works. Um, uh, um, a Roman ar- architect of Vitruvius reported that he that Archimedes had built one of these systems around 236 BC. So yeah. that's the kind of time frame that we're looking at, and and there's definite evidence of uh, rope and pulley elevators, you know, cr- crude hoisting. I, I don't want to say elevators because right. it's not really the right. Right terminology, term, sure, but a platform that can be hoisted up through a pulley system. Yes, uh, we're, we're definitely used in the Colosseum to move uh, gladiators and various animals that were trying to kill them. Yeah, not to mention the not to mention the idea of actually just constructing some of those massive uh, stone structures that you've seen if you've if you've ever toured around uh, Europe, like places like Italy, mm-hmm. uh, and you've seen these large buildings. You know that there are scaffolding and hoists and things of that nature that were used to. Uh, to lift stuff, so cranes, things like that. Well, all this is related to the idea of elevators. As far as an elevator that was used to like move people up and down floors, uh, a predecessor for that, still not really a true elevator, but a predecessor dates all the way back to 1743 A.D. in this case, and was called the Flying Chair. And it was a uh, this was a uh, this was uh, King Louis the Fifteenth. That was right, Louis the mm. Fifteenth. He um. You know, stairs were for fools, said Louis. Uh, supposedly, this particular, this, this flying chair, this elevator was connecting his, his, uh, his apartments to his mistress's apartments directly. Right. And, uh, and it was mounted on the outside of his palace wall. So this was not some interior elevator. Rather, it was a chair he would sit in. He would go out to his balcony and say, you know, I'm, wanna pay a little visit to my, uh, Saturday night thing. And he'd jump into the flying chair, although I guess he'd probably more very gently settle himself into the flying chair, and signal for the servants to move the chair so that it would make the, the trip to the, uh, the, uh, the courtesan's room. And, um, anyway, in this case, the, the cables, all the stuff that would actually made the flying chair rise and, and descend were, uh, hidden by a chimney. So this is a chimney that wasn't designed to funnel smoke. It was just a to funnel the king. Yeah, sort of. It was really it was really just to kind of house all the ropes and pulleys, and uh, there were counterweights as well to help balance this out. We'll explain why counterweights are important later on in the podcast. Uh, counterweights are something that we find in modern day elevators, but uh, the I, they also had servants in those chimneys that were that was their job to manually move the ropes, pull the ropes too, so that the king could get to his. Appointment. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a, a very early kind of example. But obviously, not all of us have palaces to slap elevators on the outside oh, of. Right. It wouldn't be until, uh, until the 1800s that, that further adventures in, um, more public hoisting devices right. would. Right. And, and, and what really made this necessary in a way? Well, first of all, we had a lot of improvements. This is the industrial revolution that we're getting into. And, uh, some of those improvements included ways of producing stronger steel and iron, which meant that we had the potential to build very, very tall buildings, which we could not do before. The materials we would use would uh, would crack under the intense pressures, the compression that they would go under if you were to try and keep building upwards. Oh, right, because uh, previous to having steel skeletal structures inside buildings, they were all masonry frames, which mean- meant that they required thicker and thicker walls the taller that a building got. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's if you had something, a, a grand total of something like 17 stories on the ground floor, the walls would have to be six feet thick. 
Yeah. And, you know, that's not really... It's not really sustainable. No, no. In, in a large, large city population area. Right, yeah. Which it's... was also happening. There were a lot more people moving to cities, and um, uh, land was becoming much more expensive throughout the course of the centuries. So. Exactly, yeah. You get you get these dense urban areas, and so you have two choices, really. You can sprawl, which is something we're very good at here in Atlanta. Yes. Or you could build upward and then have people living in flats, essentially. And uh, and working in offices that were in high rises, and it was it was the the advances in steel and iron production that would allow this to happen. But you still have a problem. How do you get up and down from the floor you live or work on down to ground floor? Because after a few floors, that becomes yeah. laborious. After after you know fifteen twenty floors, what's the quote from Ghostbusters? Like, <laughs> let me know when we get to fifty. I think I'm going to throw up. Yeah, something, something like that. that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, so. One of the things that people were wanting to to explore was this idea of elevators, something that had a mechanical element that could lift a platform or lower a platform that people could safely – people and stuff, not just people, but stuff as well – could safely uh, travel in that would get them to wherever they needed to go within the building. Um, vertically, that is. We're not talking about Wonkavators. <laughs> I, I joked right. with Lauren before we – decided to actually do this podcast that we should cover Wonkavators, but of course those are magical, so they don't really count in tech stuff. Uh, sometime in the 1820s, a painter and an architect by the names of uh, Thomas Horner and Decimus Burton, and I kind of just wanted to make this note because Decimus is such a great name. That's a pretty great that name. That should come back. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they, they collaborated on what was called an ascending room in London, which uh, which hoisted tourists uh, 37 meters high, 37 meters. That's pretty high. It's not too bad. You know, it's pretty, that's, yeah. that's a good that's, distance. That's, that's a good, that's a good, what, 90, 90 something feet? Yeah, yeah, you're talking like nine floors. That's, yeah. that's significant. Uh-huh. Uh, for, for the 1820s, um, to view the London skyline. Nice. And then by 1835 in, in Great Britain, uh, they were already starting to use elevators that had belt driven sheaves. Now what a sheave is, is it's a t- special type of pulley. It's a, it's a pulley that has um, that has grooves on right. the circumference. Yeah, so it allows it to grip onto the rope or cable so that it can uh, use traction uh, to to actually move that rope or cable. You turn, you you move the elevator by turning the sheave, which then pulls the cable. Pulls the cable. As opposed to you know, if you think of a traditional pulley, usually there's a weight on one side and then you're holding the rope on the other, and when you pull down on the rope, the weight goes up because the pulley. Uh, rolls and allows the rope to move, right? Right. In this case, you've got a pulley system that's actually gripping that rope. So when you turn the the pulley, it moves the rope itself. Right. So, it, it does some of the work for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the important part because otherwise you'd have to always have some sort of external motor that was holding on to the cable. Using like a lot a, of energy to yeah. uh, to hold that. Exactly. In place. Right. right. So. So uh, they they had started doing that in 1835, and they also used counterweights. The counterweights helped provide the friction, that traction necessary for the sheave to grip onto the cable, and also made it easier for the elevator to move up and down. And again, we'll explain more about that in a little bit. Um, but then moving ahead, so this is still the very earliest days of elevators. Uh, by eight, the 1850s, they started to see steam and hydraulic elevators, but they generally weren't used for passengers. Because there was always the potential that the elevator could fail and there weren't any safety measures really in place that could prevent an elevator from just plunging after a failure. But that was coming up very soon. Uh, yeah, by 1852, in fact, mm-hmm. when the name in elevators uh, 
created an innovation that would allow passenger safe elevators to become a thing. And this was the safety brake. Right. Invented by Elisha Graves Otis. So the Otis elevator. If you've ever been in an elevator, there's a, especially in the United States, there's a really, really good chance you saw the name Otis on the elevator somewhere. It's not to say that that's the only company that makes elevators, but it's a big one. It's a, yeah, it is a big one and probably the best known name, at least in the United States. Now, uh, in 1852, that's when Otis invented the safety brake. Uh, and it was a, technically a, a latch, a safety latch that would allow the elevator to remain in position if the lift system failed. So in other words, if the cable that was holding the elevator snapped, uh, this safety latch would ratchet in on racks on the side of the elevator shaft. Inside the shaft, right, into a... Yeah, yeah, you had like these spring-loaded, essentially a spring-loaded uh, uh, latch, and uh, once the, the, the support system would break, it would spring out and catch on one of these racks and the elevator would, would stop, stop falling. And uh, he he was actually designing this not for an elevator for people. He was working for a company. It was a, a bedding factory. And the bedding factory needed to find a way of lifting equipment safely up into the factory floors. And so he came up with this idea and then realized, wait a minute. This, this is great for all elevators. Yeah, this could work for well beyond just this one application. And so, uh, uh, sp- specifically the little, um, bolts that it used, they're, they're called Pauls, P-A-W-L-S. That's technically any sort of sliding bolt that's designed to fit into something, into notches usually. And, uh, and at first he was, uh, he, he decided that he was going to go into the elevator business pretty early on. By 1853, he started a company that would eventually become the Otis Elevator Company. Uh, and he sold a grand total of three whole elevators in the United States, and each one he sold for about three hundred bucks, which at the time wasn't bad. But, no, not but, bad. But, but three of them, yeah, is, is less than promising. Yeah. Uh, however, that that is why uh, the next year in 1854 he uh, decided to demonstrate this technology publicly at the World's Fair. Yeah. In fact, that was that was his brilliant idea. He said, you know, I, I made three sales. And then nothing like there, keep in mind, this is still early, early days for tall buildings, too. So there there wasn't yet a huge demand for elevators. Right. And so uh, he was kind of I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to now anyway. He was getting in on, on the, the ground, ground floor. floor. And mm. so, uh, yeah, he decided he'd go to the World's Fair at the Crystal Palace Exposition Center in New York City and publicly demonstrate how his safety measure would keep elevators safe, even in the case of a, a catastrophic failure. And I read an account of this, and it was pretty interesting. Yeah. He had set up a little, uh, an, a, a demonstration elevator shaft, uh, and it was really just the side walls to the shaft, what would be on the sides of the elevator shaft. There's okay. no front, no back, so it gave a clear view. Yeah. All right? He had the platform, which served as what would be a full elevator, but there were no walls to the elevator either. It's just a, a flat stage, really. Okay. And then there was a, a rope that hoisted the stage up uh, to the top of the uh, – as far up on the shaft as it could go without falling off the guide rails. And then he got everyone's attention and cut the rope. Huh. The shaft fell about a foot or so and then caught onto the ratchet, ratcheted notches that were on the sides of the shaft. And uh, the elevator 
was you know sturdy. It stayed uh-huh. there, and it and he proved that it worked. And he did this demonstration multiple times. It wasn't just the one time, but um, that ended up being an incredibly effective demonstration. People began to see that there was promise in this that. Uh, that the safety measures would be effective. And so they started to really think about using elevators to help uh, make high rises a possibility. Now, keep in mind, if this had not worked, if if he had not done this, uh, the development of the high rise type city would have been held off for who, who knows, knows how, how many long. years. Yeah, yeah. We, I'm sure we, we would be there by now. Oh, but, sure. I, but, someone else would have come up with the idea. Yeah, but just imagine how different our cities would look because buildings that were built early in that phase would not have been built. They would have been put off, which means that you'd have a totally different kind of architectural style in place by the time that they were being built. So yeah. you think about it, the elevator is why some of our most famous cities look the way they do. It's kind of cool to think of it that way. It's, uh. it's all, it's all, yeah, the, the, the conflagration of, of that and property values and, and steel frames. Yeah, yeah. The fact that all these things were working together at the same time, it was just very fortuitous, especially mm-hmm. for Otis. Uh, in 1857, he then installed the first passenger safe elevator in a New York department store called, and I'm, no, I'm gonna get this one messed up, E.V. Howat and Company. Uh, this, this was a five-story department store. Yep. And the elevator could rise at the mercurial speed of 40 feet per minute. Now keep in mind, in general, 10 feet, that's about one story. So that means it could go up four floors in one minute. I thought our elevators were slow. <laughs> but that would be that would be a leisurely elevator ride if you were going from the ground floor to the top floor. That would, but if if but if it's the first elevator you've ever been in that possibly anyone has ever you been in. You might be gripping onto the side in terror for fear of how fast it was moving. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Uh and then in 1861 Otis dies from diphtheria because even though his elevators wouldn't fall, he fell ill. I, jo- Jonathan wrote that in the notes, and I and I've already groaned and shaken my head at it at, at an earlier point today. And then she so. was wondering if I would actually read it, and I. Did. Oh no! Oh no! I knew. You knew. Yeah, you've worked <laughs> with me long enough now. Uh, on April, he died on April eighth, and that was just a few months after he had been granted a patent for his invention. Now, keep in mind, you know, you file a patent, and it can take several years from the time you file it to the time it's approved. Right. I think he had he had applied for it a full ten years previous to that in uh, in eighteen six no eighteen fifty two. So sure. it was nine yeah nine years mm-hmm. just just under a decade, and he got that patent granted. Uh, in January of 1861. So he, he did live to see his invention patented, but not long after that he fell ill from diphtheria, which there was a diphtheria epidemic at the time. He died right. in Yonkers, New York. Yeah. And, uh, his, his sons, however, uh, uh, survived. Yeah. And, and, and one of them, Charles Otis, was known as being the businessman in the family. He had a very keen eye for business. And so they took over the company. And, uh, and they continued to run the company and they were, uh, very successful, uh, in 1873, by 1873. So this is just a little over a decade after, uh, Otis had passed away. The Otis company had sold over 2,000 elevators working in places like offices, hotels, and department stores. And then, uh, by 1880, uh, that's when a fellow, a German by the name of Ferner von Siemens is the first to actually use an electric motor in elevator construction. 
And uh, his version was really interesting. It didn't involve cables. You know, most most motors involve uh, pulling some sort of cable system to raise or lower an elevator. And they're they're usually shaft. they're usually working directly on that sheave that we were mentioning. Before. Right. Instead, what this one did was it had pinion gears that engaged racks on either side of the elevator shaft and literally the gears would, would climb. Chunk, chunk, yeah, chunk, chunk, yeah, up the, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's kind of like think of it like a a, a, a locomotive, but going vertical instead of horizontal. Huh. But uh, but of course you have to have those pinion gears because otherwise you don't have enough traction to make the elevator go up. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was that was the first use of it. Now later we would see the electric motor. In fact, shortly later there would be electric motors that would actually use more traditional cable systems. Um, but that was the earliest uh, use that I could find for an electric motor mm-hmm. with yeah, an elevator. Yeah, all, all the all the other motors up to this point were being run by steam. Yeah, they had steam-powered and hydraulic-powered. Uh, uh, and hydraulics. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was it. That was it until uh, 1880. By 1898, uh, the Otis Company had merged with 14 other elevator companies to become the Otis Elevator Company. So Otis was not the only name in the elevator business at that time, but once it merged with these other 14 companies, it became probably, I would say, the most uh, prevalent, most powerful elevator company in the United States, easily. Right, right. This was uh, th- this was around the era when when steel was really really taking off, and um, and the, the the last of the big masonry frame buildings had were were being completed at the time. Right. Everything new that was starting out was all steel, so it was a huge business. Yeah, yeah, and it ended up being uh, while the elevator industry in general, just like the joke I said at the top, it did have its ups and downs, which is both both true and funny. Um, uh, you know. It, because there was this ongoing trend to taller buildings, anyone who was in the industry knew that there was a future in it. It wasn't right. it wasn't like suddenly people weren't going to want elevators anymore. Right. <laughs> unless they decided that they no longer wanted to have tall buildings and would rather sprawl out again. And that just didn't seem like that was ever going to, to come to, to be an option. So uh, really, that's the basic of the timeline. I mean, of course. Lots of advances have happened since then, but that we just wanted to kind of cover the sort of the history of the origin, yeah, the of, origin of elevators, mm-hmm. and then go into more about how they actually work. Right. And the the first one we wanted to talk about were were elevators that use and that are elevators really because there still are elevators that do this that use hydraulic lift systems. They aren't using cables at all. Right. So and this yeah yeah th- so so there there are two basic systems hydraulic and, and cables and and yes. Yeah. Hydraulics are slightly less common for several reasons that we that we will get into in a moment. Right. So if you have a uh, a shorter type of building like a two two to five story I would say maybe even two to four uh hydraulic elevators may be something that you've experienced because um I mean I I actually knew a, I I used to one of the libraries I used to go to as a kid had a hydraulic elevator. Huh. Um, and the way these work is beneath the bottom floor. So you've got the you know the ground floor where the elevator comes down to a stop. That's mm-hmm. its final stop. It can't go any lower. Sure. And dug down beneath that. Yeah. Is your hydraulic system. And that system consists of a – there's a cylinder. Uh, inside that cylinder is a piston that has the hydraulic ram at the end of it that connects directly to the bottom of, of your the elevator. elevator car. Right. Yep. And then you the connected to that cylinder is a holding tank uh that holds all the hydraulic fluid that has a very powerful pump 
that can pump fluid from the hydraulic tank into the cylinder. And then there's also a return valve that when it's closed won't allow hydraulic fluid back in. But when you open it, it does allow hydraulic fluid to move from the cylinder back Back into the holding tank. tank. Now, this is a closed system. That means that that hydraulic fluid is either going to be in the tank or in the cylinder, or there's going to be some mix of either. Or moving in in between the two. Right. But but you don't lose hydraulic fluid, assuming that there are no leaks. So uh, it means that you can reuse that fluid over and over and over and over again. So that's one reason why it's popular. Um, So the way it works is that you turn, let's say that you're on the ground floor and you hit two. You want to go up to the second floor. What happens is that sends a signal to the hydraulic system beneath the elevator. Uh, it turns on the pump that then starts to pump hydraulic fluid from the holding tank into, into the, the cylinder. cylinder. Right. That, the, the, the fluid pushes on the uh, hydraulic ram yep. or piston yep. and moves it up the shaft. That's right. It displaces the piston from the cylinder. So uh, depending on how tall your building is, it may have to pump more or less fluid into you know whatever floor you've pressed. So if it's a four-story building and you've hit four, it obviously needs to pump in enough fluid to get to lift the ram all the way up to the fourth floor. Uh, and then when you're coming down... The valve opens up and allows fluid, the fluid to, to come back into the holding tank right. and just basically lets gravity pull the car back right. down. And you control the descent by the aperture of the valve. I mean, obviously, if you if you were to open the valve all the way up and it was a large valve, then that elevator could descend at an alarming rate. But but it's usually a pretty a pretty uh, tight system. Yeah. So yeah. so it's usually it's usually the pressure of the fluid and hence hydraulics that right. are allowing it to ease gently back down to exactly the ground floor exactly and or whatever so, floor. You want. Right, exactly. Uh, it's it's very, uh, you know, like I said, I've ridden in these kind of systems before, and uh, it's a gradual ride. It's, it's slow. It's, a, it's slower, definitely it's, slower. It's, um, it, but I mean, it was a library in rural Georgia. You know, most of the people going to this were in their late four hundreds. So, you know, they don't need something that's going to be an exciting ride up and down the side of a glass high rise in Atlanta. All right. Uh, um, the, the the speed is one issue. Um, they are slower. And um, the the thing with the with that piston system is that you have to dig the 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 further up the piston is going to push. It, it needs to be at least that long going down into the ground. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're talking four stories up, you have to dig far enough down so that that piston, when it's completely retracted, fits Right. About four stories into the ground. Yeah, exactly. And then when it's fully extended, that means that the whole system is eight stories tall. Yeah. Because you have to have, you know, these pistons don't retract. It's not like they are. It's not a collapsible telescope. No, no, it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a solid piece. And so, uh, yeah, if you want to have a 40 story building, that would mean that you'd have to have a piston that was incredibly long and you'd have to dig really far down. It's just not practical. Right. So uh, so that's uncommon uh, and you normally run into rope or cable systems. They're often the, – the names are interchangeable because when they're talking about ropes, they're talking about steel ropes. And we will explain exactly how those work in just a moment. But before we do, let's take a quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. 
and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. All right, so let's talk about cable or rope system elevators. Uh, these are probably, I would say these are the most common types of elevators that you're going to find. Definitely. And uh, and they do, they, they rely on what it sounds like. They rely on cables or ropes, steel ropes. Right, right. You've got these, these traction steel ropes that are going to be attached on one end to the elevator car. Yeah. Then go loop up around a sheave. Right, which is that, that pulley that has those grooves in it that allow it to grip onto the, the rope or cable. Right, and then attach at the other end to um to a counterweight. Right, and the, the reason for the counterweight, again, is to kind of make the, the whole system work more easily. Here's the idea. Uh, your counterweight typically weighs about the same as the elevator when it's at 40% capacity. Mm-hmm. So a little less than a half full elevator. And the reason for that is that when the sheave starts to turn, it has to do less work if the counterweight and the elevator are close to the same weight. So, uh, you know, you would imagine that if it were just a sheave and there was no counterweight there, it would have to turn uh, it, the the turning power, that torque that it would it have, have to, to generate. It would have to pull a lot harder. Exactly. And this way it just has to overcome a little bit of friction and then lets the weight actually do most of the work. Yeah. And if not most of the work, let's say you've got a full elevator uh, and obviously a 40% capacity thing wouldn't wouldn't outweigh the full elevator, it at least offsets some of the power needed. So that torque that it has to generate doesn't have to be as great. And this is important so that you can just make it an efficient system. Uh, the counterweight also helps uh, with some of the, the safety features as well, although it can 
also be a hazard. We'll get into all of that toward the very end. It's a right. cheerful way for us to end the podcast, actually. Now that I look at how I laid out my notes, I'm thinking, hmm, all right, well, Excellent. that was kind of weird. So, oh, uh, so, so, so the sheave is connected directly to, uh, sometimes directly to a motor. Right. Um, there, there are two kinds of these cable system, two basic kinds of these cable systems, uh, gearless elevators and right. geared elevators. In the gearless ones, the motor um, uh, rotates the sheave directly. Right. And in the gearless, it's uh, connected to a gear train. Right. The geared ones, it's just a series of gears that connect the motor to the sheave so that it can translate rotational motion to the sheave and allow you to pull those ropes and uh, move the elevator up and down. Now, uh, a typical elevator, these are not, they're not all like this, but a typical elevator will have that sheave at the top of the elevator shaft. Right. All right. So at the very top of the elevator shaft is this, this grooved pulley that is motorized. So the pulley itself is the thing that turns and moves the elevator up and down. Uh, you've got the counterweight that is connected to one end of the cables that not only provides the ability for uh, the, the sheave to do work without having to exert more energy, but it also creates that tension, that, that traction or friction that it needs in order to that move hold, the cable. That holds the cord taut right. against the sheave. Right. And that and that's why the sheave, when it turns, the cable itself moves. Otherwise, it could just slip against the cable. That would obviously be dangerous. Very bad. And it wouldn't, or, or it, you know, best case scenario, your elevator doesn't go anywhere. It's just, mm-hmm. spin, the, the sheave would just be spinning against the cable. Worst case scenario, it could cause a, a terrible accident. Uh, there are, by the way, multiple cables connected between the elevator and the counterweight going around the sheave. It's not like there's just one It's not cable. like in the movies where, where you know, like one little metal thing kind of snaps and then all of a sudden an elevator goes plummeting. There's right. usually seven or eight of these things and, yeah. and very strong steel. Like one of these cables would be capable of holding up the elevator, but there's seven or eight backups. Right. Yeah. The, the idea being usually I think the fewest I've ever seen was four. So mm-hmm. between four and eight cables is typical. And like you said, Lauren, each one of these would be more than capable of holding up the elevator on its own. Uh, you have that those others for redundancy, because obviously you don't want to have your elevator be unsafe. So, uh, so, uh, so, yeah. So, so the, the, the sheave and the motor usually um, contained in a compartment above the elevator or mm-hmm. sometimes on the side. Uh, right. uh, occasionally there'll be cabinets on the side and um, and the sheave will be. Uh, on the side there and moving everything along that way. That's it's it's a little bit more complicated, but yeah, um, you, I, I've seen like the the simplest one has the sheave mounted to the elevator shaft and it's completely separate from the elevator. But there are elevators that have motors that are uh, connected to the elevator itself, not to a right. not to something that's mounted on the the shaft. It still works on the same principle, right? It's still got this rotating sheave that is moving the cable through, but you've just located the the sheave on a different part of the system. So instead of it being part of the building, it's part of the elevator. I believe um, isn't the isn't the Marriott in downtown Atlanta? Um, it could uh, be. I mean, side mounted sheave. I, I, I feel like I, I could be completely lying, folks. I have no idea. Yeah, we've got a lot of uh, fancy ele- elevator systems down in Atlanta. For example, uh, if you ever are in Atlanta and you want to have a real treat, you go to the uh, uh, Peachtree Tower and you ride the glass elevator all the way up, which is on, mounted on the side of the building. So you actually have a view of, right. of the outside of Atlanta. 
and ride that all the way up to the rotating restaurant called the Sundial at the very top of the Peachtree which Tower. Is, which is high. I don't know off the top of my head. 72 floors, Something ridiculous 72 like that. 72 floors. Yeah. Which, Not you know, personally comfortable with that. Now, Grant, but, I'm sure many of our listeners live in cities where 72 floors is not nothing. the... Yeah. But for Atlanta, that's pretty tall. It is, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's an exciting ride. I gotta say, I've, I've gone up there many times. Um, but yeah, so, so we've got, we've covered the counterweight, we've covered the sheave, uh, we've covered the fact that we use the counterweight to help conserve energy and, and with the idea of the potential energy. These elevators also have lots and lots of safety features. Uh, oh, and before I mention, go into safety features, I should also mention, uh, the elevator car and the counterweight ride on guide rails. Right. Very important. The rails are what keep them from swaying when they're going up and down the shaft, which anyone could tell you is a good thing. Oh, it, absolutely. It, it also helps out with some of those safety features that we're going to talk out, talk, talk about in a second. Yeah. In fact, let's just go ahead and, and segue into that because, you know, we need to talk about the sort of things that keep elevators safe. That was, you know, the, the, the little uh, pinion system that Otis came up with, little system, the thing that made elevators possible. Just that thing. Um, no big. That, that was one element that was uh, an elevator safety. But of course, when you're talking about, uh, Elevator systems that can go all the way up to over 70 floors, then you want lots of different safety features there. You know, lots of redundancy, not just uh, uh, some some little uh, poles and some racks that are on the side of the elevator shaft. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's okay for five stories, but I'm less trustful of it for say, you know, a hundred. Um, yeah. So 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 the main kind of system that we're working with here is is called a governor. Yeah. System. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, I was very disappointed to find out that, uh, it wasn't like a cockney thing. So we could, like, it wasn't like the governor. The governor. Um, no, it's, uh, and by the way, I did a little arm thing that, that, you know, you guys don't get the benefit of. But I think if you say governor, you have to do a little, like, a little, little swing your arm just a bit. Governor. Um, sorry, all my friends in the UK. Former friends in the UK. Uh, so the governor is is a, a safety feature that is supposed to help prevent the elevator from moving too quickly, and it, it's it it's literally a, springs into place if it does move too quickly. Right. This is a this is a second rope system. Uh, there's there's a rope. Um, it's it's looped around the governor's sheave at the top of the shaft, and then another weighted sheave at the bottom. Right. So in this case, you've got the main set of ropes or cables that are attached to the counterweight and to the elevator, which into, move the elevator itself. Yeah, and the elevator sheave. And then there's a secondary sheave and uh, cable system. That's the governor sheave. This is completely separate. It is right, not right. connected to that main sheave. But but it is attached to the elevator. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's got these two sheaves, one at the top, one at the bottom, and then it is connected in the middle to the elevator so that uh, when the elevator moves, this rope moves in between the two sheaves. Right. The governor's sheave is actually has uh, fly weights. These are these weights that are held in place by a high tension spring. They, they they pivot on pins inside the sheave, right? And, uh, and 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 are attached to each other so that they're not because they've got little hooks on the ends. Right. They've got the teeth so that it actually hooks into notches that are on the inside of the governor's sheave. Okay. So the governor's sheave has these notches that are stationary. They do not turn with the rest of the sheave. The fly flyweights do turn with the rest of the sheave. Now, there's a tension spring that holds those flyweights in place, but if the... The, 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 the faster that the, that the governor's sheave is turning, the stretchier the spring gets. Right, because of centrifugal force. Correct. So as the centrifugal force gets strong enough, if it's, if it's spinning fast enough for the centrifugal force to, to counteract the tension on the spring, those flyweights spring out 
and then they catch on those, those ratchets on the on, on the, the inside of the sheep, which right. are, again are stationary. The mm-hmm. inside of the sheep is not turning; it's the outside that's turning, and these flyweights that are turning. And so those so, flyweights will hook into it and stop the governor sheave, which will stop the rope, which will stop the elevator car. Yeah, it's it's um, uh, usually it also enacts a braking system. Yes, so it's not like it just jerks to a halt, but it does inter- uh, enact a braking system that will. Uh, make the elevator uh, slow down and then ultimately stop. And this is, you know, necessary for any elevator system where you're going more than a floor or so. And obviously, the higher up you are, interestingly enough, the more uh, likely the system will kick into place because your elevator will be accelerating at the the speed of the well, the accelerative speed of gravity. Mm-hmm. And uh, assuming there's nothing else holding it back that's slowing it down, so it actually will be more likely to uh, to to activate the further up you are. Um, which is kind of a terrifying thought, but it is true. Another part of the safety system is just, like you said, Lauren, just the ropes themselves, because they are all so strong. They're made out of steel material. They're wound around. It's kind of uh, braided in a way, braided steel. And, uh, and like we said, one rope can support the weight of an elevator, a full elevator, but they uh, usually have between four and eight so that you don't have to worry so much. If one rope snaps, the others can hold on just as well. And then you've got some electromagnetic brakes that are supposed to uh, to pop into place if the elevator exceeds a certain speed. Right. The electromagnets under normal circumstances hold the brakes open. And then if something terrible happens, they snap those brakes down right. into place. Right. So these are all the different systems. And then there's the there's the final uh safety measure in an elevator system that's common amongst most elevators. If all else fails and the the elevator car does fall down the shaft, there's usually something at the bottom that's going to help cushion that fall. Right. There's usually some sort of shock absorbent system. It might be a a fluid-filled system where it's like a, 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 again, like a cylinder with a piston with oil in it so that uh, the or, or oil in the cylinder, and then as the the elevator makes contact, it compresses. Uh, it could be a spring system. It could be essentially what amounts to an elevator style crash pad. Uh, <laughs> right, right. It, it all depends on the actual system, but these are you know some sort of shock absorber. And yeah, that will if you've if you've ever seen a seen an open elevator shaft. I mean, don't go looking for this, but you know if you've ever seen a seen the elevator doors open on the ground floor and you see some kind of large c- cylinder sort of thing. That's that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So that covers the the safety. Uh, We didn't really talk so much about the doors. The doors do usually have some sort of automatic system so that if it detects that there is an obstruction, they will open automatically. That's what's supposed to happen. We'll get into what happens when that doesn't happen in a minute. Um, And then there's also uh, the whole idea about selecting your floor. Now, back in the old days. (laughs) Right, right. You had to have a. a uh, like an elevator el- technician, a, yeah. a bellhop. Yeah, sort uh, of a, yeah, the, I know there's, I know that there's a specific term and I can't come up with it either, what? but yes, you, an elevator attendant, essentially. But the elevator attendant's job would be, uh, you would walk in and, you know, you've probably seen these in movies that someone who's dressed up in a fancy outfit says, uh, what floor? And then you tell the person and they make sure that the elevator doors are closed. Usually in these systems, the elevator was uh, designed so that it would not work unless the doors were closed. It's not true in the case of every elevator, but it was one of those safety features. Oh, right. And those those original elevators had um, had two sets of doors. They had interior doors attached to the cab uh, to, to the car of the elevator that um, that would that would 
lock into place or that the that the cabbie would would lock into place right. and then the exterior doors were um operated uh exter- externally yeah, yeah you had to have the external doors so that people wouldn't just wander up and fall down an elevator shaft which has happened and I'll cover that too but they were all manual right yeah, so um, so what would happen is you would tell the elevator operator where you wanted to go, like what floor you wanted to go on, and then they would hit a switch, which would essentially be climb or descend. And then once you got to the place that you were going, they would turn it off and you would get off the elevator. And a good elevator operator would be able to stop the elevator so it was right there at the floor and you didn't have like a, a lift. Like a step up and down. Yeah, yeah, which could cause problems. You could you could trip and fall or something. Um now, of course, these days we have computer systems that automate all this, where you've got a panel of lights uh, or panel or of buttons. Or magnets or what? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you were you were talking about the external. That's yes. completely right, Lauren. I was I was talking about buttons because I think buttons light up. Uh, but now, <laughs> you know, the button when you press a button, it tells it essentially sends a signal saying that this elevator needs to go to this floor. How does the computer know what floor the elevator is already on, Lauren? Uh, that that is done by a series of, of of lights or magnets or other indicators along the wall of a shaft. And as the um as the elevator car moves past them, the computer takes note of where it is. Right. So essentially, the computer is counting what floors you are on, and it uh, that's how it senses it. Now you can get into more advanced sensors these days, but that's that's sort of the, that's the classic basic. way. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh yeah, it's it's pretty simple stuff. You know, you hit a button and it just sends a signal saying. This elevator needs to go to this floor and the the mechanics do the rest once the computer has processed that request. Uh, and there's a couple different levels of uh, computer sophistication that are involved. The, the classic ones will just go up until no one has pressed up anymore and then we'll start to collect the, the, the down calls again. Right. In other words, if uh, you've got. Uh, if you've got three people in the elevator, someone's hit two, someone's hit four, someone's hit eight, but there's someone on floor seven who wants to go down, that elevator's not going to stop for the person on seven until it's let off the person from eight. Right. Uh, and, and there's, there's lots of newer systems coming out that, uh, that will, uh, assess traffic patterns and send alternate elevators to alternate floors at different times of the day. Right, you know, depending right. on who needs to go where, it's it can get a lot more complicated than that. So, for example, here in the building we work in, in the morning, there's almost always at least one elevator at the ground floor already because not enough people have arrived for those elevators to be used in between floors, right? It's usually ground floor to whatever your destination is. Mm-hmm. And if it's early enough, it's only people coming in in small groups. So you walk in and you press the button and immediately a door opens. It feels like it's magic. Sometimes there's already a door open before you even get in there. There have been times where I've walked in, no doors have been open. Before I can even hit the button, it goes bing. And I think, did security just do that for me? But um, Or are they watching? I don't know. But either way, uh, they, they have been more sophisticated. And in fact, they've even gotten so sophisticated as in some buildings that have lots and lots and lots of floors, instead of just hitting up or down, you actually end up indicating what floor you're going Specifically to. Specifically what floor. Right? And, then, and then you're told which elevator to go wait in front of, and then it'll take you to your floor. Um, there are plenty of buildings I've worked in that had express versions of this where it just gave you a block of floors that the elevator could serve and it was, uh, it would skip all the other floors. Right, right. Which, uh, if it's high enough means it's almost guaranteed to make your ears go pop. Yay! Yeah, that's always fun. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's talk about elevator accidents, which, 
I had not planned on talking about, but I sent out the message on Twitter before we recorded this podcast and received a request from Nani. And Nani says, always see elevators crashing on TV and movies. Has it ever happened in real life? The short answer is yes. It yes, has happened. a lot. Um, uh, not a lot. Let's not say a lot, okay, Lauren. We, sorry. we work in a building where there's it's, an elevator. It doesn't happen a lot. It has happened. Over um, the course of history, it's happened a few times. Right. Now, uh, let me... There's a let, lot of news stories about it. They're kind of gruesome. <laughs> the, the stories are awful, which make it seem like... Like a lot. Like a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even, you could argue, one time is too many. And I would not argue against that, because obviously Certainly. you're talking about people's lives, and I treat that very seriously. But no, no. I mean, in the grand scheme of the universe, uh, very few elevator accidents happen these days. Yeah. Let me give you a statistic. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the estimate is that elevator accidents cause 27 deaths per year. However, elevators make about 18 billion passenger trips per year. Wow. So out of 18 billion trips of taking people up and down floors, about 27, 27 people die. And out of those number, the most the 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 most frequent victims of elevator accidents are maintenance workers, people who are working well, in elevator mm-hmm. shafts to All fix the time things. To, right. right, and someone has failed to enact the proper safety features to uh, prevent an elevator from moving up and down while the maintenance work is being done. That's tragic, but that does seem to happen the most frequently. Uh, behind that, behind maintenance workers, are people who, for some reason or other, choose to get out of an elevator car while it's in a shaft and uh, either in an attempt to escape a car that has been stuck or to do something like elevator surfing, which is an incredibly stupid thing to do. It's, it, um, do, do not do just because you see uh, that happen in like Die Hard does not mean that it's a good idea. For no, you don't, to do do it. It. don't do it. It's almost it's almost a guarantee for severe injury, if not death. Don't do it. Uh, elevators in reality do not work the way you see them in movies. The elevator shafts are dark. They're nasty. Everything is covered in, in in oil and grease because it has to be lubricated to allow elevators to pass. And uh, and the they're same, cramped. The same the same way that air vents do not perfectly fit a human person or two human people. Yeah, I was very disappointed to find that air vents don't come in Bruce Willis size. Like it's not just a standard. Um, it was very disappointing to me. Yeah, the the same same principles. Elevator shafts are not fun places to hang out. Yeah, so um, let's talk a little bit about some actual accidents. Oh, now. right, yeah, and and so, <sighs> so 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 some some of these accidents are are caused by the the way that the doors work in modern elevators. Um, there's usually a, a motion sensor that prevents them from closing if someone is standing in the way. I'm right. sure that you've seen that. And I, I want to mention before we really get into this. Some of these descriptions could turn out to be a bit gruesome. So if that is something that does bother you, I would completely understand if you end listening to the podcast right now and wait for our next episode where we'll probably talk about puppies. But um, because I'm going to need something after this, people. Techno puppies. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll talk about some of those robotic dogs or something. But uh, but yes, we are going to talk about some some fairly famous accidents and uh, and not. And, and they're, they're not, they're not pleasant. They're not pretty. Uh, I've actually got them by chronological order. So before we get into any of the ones specifically about the doors. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan. And on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team 
always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right, so we're back. Uh, this is not the first time there was an elevator accident. It's just the first one that I, I took, a, a, I, I listed. Um, I did a kind of a, a search for elevator accidents in general and then picked a few. In 1890, U.S. Congressman Isaac Jordan died after he stepped into an open elevator shaft. What had happened was he had called an elevator. Uh, he was talking with a friend of his when the doors had opened. The elevator, he, he essentially spent too long speaking to his friend. The elevator then moved, changed floors, but the doors failed to close. And so the congressman, Jordan, Upon concluding his conversation with his friend, stepped back into what he thought was the elevator, but was in fact an open elevator open shaft, shaft, and he fell to his death. Mm. Uh, 1903 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, this was one of those cases where it was um, the the accident was was due to the behavior of the passengers, because not in not every case is it something where there's a mechanical failure because the elevator itself was poorly maintained in this case uh there was a a big conference that was going on in Pittsburgh and uh uh there were all these people in this one building and 17 of them crowded into an elevator that was designed to carry 
at maximum like 10 people. Mm -hmm. So 17 people crowded into this elevator and in the Donnelly building in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the elevator fell six stories. And then the cable and assembly fell on top of the elevator. Uh, yeah, because it was it was too much weight and yeah. it pulled the whole thing down. Four people out of the seventeen died. So the others uh, survived, injured, but they were survived. They survived, and uh, again, the accident was blamed on the fact that too many people crowded into the elevator at once. This is part of why there are floor sensors in most elevators these days, which uh, will will do that really high pitched, annoying dinging thing if you or buzz or yeah. buzz or whatever when you load too many people onto an elevator and you know, t- t- telling you to gets them that weight out of there because it is too much. Right. And and the elevators these days, mo- you know, almost all the ones that have this system and that's they will pretty lock much all, yeah, if, they, they if won't that sensor move. goes off. Right. Yeah. And I've I've been in elevators that have done that. I mean mm-hmm. while while we're on this topic, I just wanted to mention I, I kinda meant to mention it back when we were talking about computers, but um but but when you uh if if you're trying really hard to get somewhere on an elevator and the elevators are very busy, only press the the, the direction that you want to go. Because the computer system's actually pretty advanced, it knows what it's doing, and it can do its job better if you tell it what you need. So in if other you, words, if you, if you in other words, don't both, hear, don't hear, don't hit you, both up and down if you're planning on going up. Correct. Anyway, All right, yeah, getting back to the accidents, you know, yes. I had to have a little levity in there because some of the other accidents are just so awful. The, here's here's one that's a remarkable story and. Remarkable for multiple reasons. It's both awful and uh, amazing at the same time. 1945. Um, that was the year when a B-25 bomber flown by Lieutenant Colonel William Franklin Smith Jr. Uh, was flying through a heavy fog bank, missed the airport landing strip, and instead crashed into the north face of the Empire State Building. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, not many people know about this accident compared to uh, the 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 terrorist attack on 9/11, which right, obviously sure. there are parallels, right? But this sure. was this was an aviation accident. It uh-huh. wasn't done on it wasn't a, a purposeful attack. But yes, it, it slammed into the north side of the Empire State Building, and among the people who were injured was a woman named Betty Lou Oliver, who was an elevator attendant, and she was on the 75th floor at the time. She was knocked down and she was burned by uh, uh, jet fuel, essentially Yeesh. airplane fuel, and so. Firefighters were able to put the fire out uh, in about 40 minutes, I think. It was the highest fire wow. any firefighters yeah. have been able to uh, to extinguish. And then the rescuers, uh, they found uh, Oliver and they knew that they needed to get her to an ambulance. So uh, they put her in an elevator, but that elevator had been weakened. Had been damaged mm-hmm. by the... Mm. The elevator doors closed and then the cable snapped and the elevator plummeted 75 floors, landed on the crash pad... Then the assembly and cable hit on oh. top of it. She survived. They pulled her out of the rubble. She w- she survived, and they were able to get her to the hospital. Wow. Yeah, pretty insane. At any rate, so these were all early accidents, uh, and, and accidents still happen occasionally. And part of the reason why a lot of the safety features that exist today have been put into place. Right, exactly. That These accidents showed that there were other safety measures that needed to be there. And once in a while, uh, rarely, an accident still happens, uh, maybe, you know, uh, involving the elevator doors or some other system. But the important thing to remember is that, uh, that, you know, 18 billion trips is, that's a lot of trips. And so they are phenomenally safe. It's just that when you hear about the accidents, they seem, they seem, uh, 
they they capture our imagination, right? Right. It's, sure. I mean, it's it's one of those things that that can easily uh, overwhelm a person, and you can start concentrating on it too much. It's kind of like getting into a plane. This this idea sure, that course. you're giving up control. Yeah. Um. But but we should. You know, I definitely want to stress that. The elevators that are in use today, especially the ones that are in public buildings where they have to undergo regular uh, investigations, you know, regular, regular maintenance, maintenance and sure checkups, uh, yeah, you know, all of that sort of stuff uh, are remarkably safe. Yes, and and also furthermore, um, uh, the lessons that we can take away from uh, from some of the things that we did not mention that have happened more recently are just that if you if you are stuck in an elevator, I myself have been stuck in an elevator for not too long, maybe half an hour or so. Yeah. Um if uh if that happens, you know, don't don't panic. There's usually a call box in there. Yeah. Use that. Um also uh don't try to pry open the doors yourself and and don't try to uh to leap dramatically action hero style out of the elevator if it if it seems like bad things are happening. Probably bad things are not happening and you have more likelihood of um of getting caught in in a door mechanism and injured that way than you do of the elevator actually falling. Right. Yeah. It's um, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things where uh, a, a lot of the uh, deaths and injuries could be avoided if people follow the proper safety protocols, uh, specifically with the maintenance workers. Um, it's you know, it's 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 technology. Sometimes technology fails, but. M- but I would say that it's one of the most reliable ones that we have out yeah. there. Uh, and of course, remember, we're humans. We're really bad at uh, factoring in odds. So uh-huh. things like, you know, uh, the odds of, of operating a vehicle safely are actually worse than the odds of having like a, a safe you know, flying and which are, you know, the same like uh, uh, taking an elevator ride safely. So I don't want to make everyone feel like they have to climb the stairs from here on out. That's not the case. Oh, that's very healthy. It can be, unless you're at the top of the 70th floor, in which case you kind of have to pack a lunch. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's it's definitely that's not the message that we're trying to send here. Certainly not. All right. Well, uh, thank you for that question. Nani, you've taught me a valuable lesson. And uh, and that is not Googling elevator accidents. No, I read way more than what I, I described. And uh, and and yeah, it's, there's no point in going over it. These are all the exceptions. And uh, it, there's nothing but just uh, it's just disturbing. But it turns out, again, like these are all exceptions, not the rule. Right. So, um, yeah, don't be terrified. All right. I'm glad that I've stressed that. <laughs> Now, guys, if you have any questions, any comments, any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, I highly recommend you get in touch with us and let us know because that's kind of how we choose these things. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle at both of those is techstuffhsw and Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. 
So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.